Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 1st, 2017, we feature another major story in the WPJ Fall issue about the inspiration and impact of so-called responsible paternity laws across Latin America. We'll also spotlight top stories in the upcoming winter issue, cover line Native Voices, But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. I used to joke back in my days covering the Middle East that bias was in the eyes of the beholder. We live in a world today where that's no longer just a joke. Indeed, today, there are far more challenging realities that everybody from policymakers to journalists to intelligence analysts and students are dealing with. Call it the death of objectivity. For the past 12 years, I've taught a seminar at Bard College called Writing on International Affairs. It began in what seems like another century as a course for smart undergraduates from liberal arts colleges around the nation who aspired to stay in New York for a semester and be foreign correspondents someday. In the time since I began teaching it, though, the idea of encouraging smart young people to pursue that dream seemed pretty unethical. Yes, there are still a few foreign correspondence gigs around, but mostly they've dried up over the past decade, victims of technology, corporate bean counters, and American myopia. Those still plying my old trade in places like the New York Times or CNN are more likely to die in those jobs than move on to make way for new young talent. So my course has evolved over the years to arm students with the more varied and relevant skill set. It now includes segments on blogging and podcasting, online documentary production, how to write about risk, comparative and scenario analysis, or to structure memoranda. These days, that strikes me as a greater service to my students than teaching them how to write wistful dispatches from the Central Asian steppes. But something I still hammer home in the course is the concept of objectivity, a concept that is entirely alien, apparently, to the current generation of undergraduates. Once the touchstone of journalists and policy analysts, it's either now dismissed as utopian, or more often, it never even enters the conversation. Why try to do something that can't be done, one of my students asked. What a sad attitude to have at 19. News executives in the U.S. now make a fight fire with fire argument for casting off objectivity in favor of a political position. I spent some time at MSNBC back when it adhered to old school news standards, two sources, fairness, that sort of thing. The network was rewarded for its efforts with a consistent ranking of three out of three in the cable ratings war. Since it's decided to tack left in response to Fox News' right, it's had more success. But it's also become part of the problem. I view its reports as just as biased as those coming from Fox, just a different angle. There's no time here to get into the deep sociological results of this trend, but suffice it to say that the 2016 election didn't just happen by accident. It grew out of the poisonous soil of compromised information outlets that were ripe to be used, abused, debased, and hacked. There was a time not too long ago when we had arbiters of sorts to prevent this. The quality newspapers were one source. Network news was the other. Until the early 1990s, the vast majority of U.S. adults watched one of the three major network nightly news programs, ABC, NBC, or CBS. As a young copyboy at the New York Times in the early 80s, One of my jobs was to watch them all, report on what they reported, and turn it over to the night editor in Washington, just in case they had something the Times did not. 
It was frankly rare that they did, I must say, but it was also rare that the three varied much from each other. For a long time, I thought that was a travesty, groupthink in action. But now that it's gone, a very important leavening force has been removed from the American experience. Once upon a time, most of us were on the same page, at least for half an hour a night. Now, like fat tourists on a cruise ship buffet, we consume only what we want, and what we want is available in abundance to ensure we come back for seconds and thirds and fourths. The chefs quickly remove any dish that isn't wildly popular, like, say, foreign policy analysis. That's the modern media landscape we exist in. Driven by marketing, its integrity compromised left and right, no exceptions. On the right, this week, Al Franken and Matt Lauer currently play the role of the devil. On the left, predictably, they've held over Judge Roy Moore, and the Donald is always there. Call it the death of objectivity. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. A Rio de Janeiro judge has sentenced former Real Madrid and Brazil international fullback Roberto Carlos to jail for failing to pay child support. The 44-year-old owes his ex-partner Barbara Thurla 61,000 reais around 20,000 U.S. dollars. Retired soccer star Roberto Carlos this past August became only one of the many men entangled in a variety of laws across Latin America designed to make more biological fathers financially responsible for a growing wave of children born out of wedlock in the region. So-called responsible paternity laws have made strange bedfellows of conservative politicians, feminist activists, and child welfare advocates for obvious reasons. But critics say the legislation also ignores harsh economic realities and shifts the burden of critical support from government to the poor themselves, men far more hard-pressed than Alberto Carlos in particular. The controversy is addressed in the fall issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Constructing Family, by Nara Milanish, Associate Professor of History at Barnard College in New York. Her article is titled Daddy Issues, Responsible Paternity as Public Policy in Latin America, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Professor Milanich, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hello, thank you. Costa Rica passed the first responsible paternity law in 2001. Tell us about the new mechanisms it put in place to trace and prove paternity. The responsible paternity law in Costa Rica was the first of many such laws um, that have been promulgated across Latin America in the last 15 or so years. And in many ways, it's, it's a very boring law. It's sort of an administrative or bureaucratic law which makes it easier for unmarried women to establish the legal identity of their children's father. And essentially what that means is a series of bureaucratic steps that allow uh, women to identify the father uh, for the purposes of the state and make the father responsible economically for the children that they bear. So once upon a time before 2001, if you were an unmarried mother in Costa Rica and indeed much of Latin America, establishing uh, the paternity of your child was a very burdensome and expensive process. You had to hire a lawyer, you had to go to court, you might spend months or even years in court um, establishing uh, paternity 
if the father doesn't show up when he's cited in court, perhaps the court doesn't have the um, power to force him to show up and declare whether he is the father or not. Um, if he denies being the father, um, you could request a paternity test, but if you have to pay for it, uh, you know, more expense, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very difficult, if not impossible, for many women to establish um, the legal identities of the fathers of their children. And so what the law in uh, Costa Rica in 2000 does and what a series of laws you know, elsewhere in Latin America do since then is make that process easier. What are the obligations and penalties entailed for those discovered? So a woman has a, uh, a baby in the hospital and a hospital employee or civil registry employee will assist her in filling out paperwork. Um, she need only identify the name of the, uh, of the putative father and his address and the, the state essentially takes care of the rest. Um, the state cites the father to declare his paternity and if he uh, doesn't show up within a certain uh, time period, he will be automatically declared the father of that child and therefore economically responsible um, you know, to help with its support. Um, so that's one penalty. Um, over the years, different um, Latin American countries in their responsible paternity laws have implemented other kinds of um, penalties. Um, Honduras, for example, last year established a state registry of um, of errant fathers um, who, you know, aren't allowed to uh, open a new credit card or bank account, for example, um, if they are, um, you know, if they have uh, not as assumed responsibility for their uh, children, for example. So there, there are a series of, of possible consequences, some of them quite serious, um, that uh, these laws establish. Um, in order to um, incentivize men to recognize their children. What other countries in the region have followed suit or are considering it? So Costa Rica is the first in 2001 with this, this sort of model law of responsible paternity, as it's called. Um, but since then, a whole series of other laws have been discussed or even promulgated, um, particularly throughout um, Central America. Um, but also uh, in places like Brazil, um, Brazil has a very um, vast, given the size of the country, and really interesting um, uh, series of responsible paternity laws. Um, they're currently being discussed in places like Mexico and the Dominican Republic. So this is really, even as each country has its own history and has its own you know, law, um, you know, each law is a little bit different. Nevertheless, this is really a, a Latin America-wide phenomenon, which I think is why one of the reasons I find it as a Latin American historian so, so interesting. The roots of responsible paternity laws in Latin America, you write, lie in the region's unique family patterns, marriage, illegitimacy, and their relationship to class, economics, and the state. Say more about that and especially the impact of social and economic inequality in the region. Absolutely. So when we think about Latin America and families and gender relations, probably the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, well, Latin America is a Catholic region. Um, we may have heard, you may have heard about the rise of evangelical religion, particularly in places like Central America and Brazil. And so we may have a, a, an image in our head, a stereotype that um, Latin American family patterns and gender patterns must be um, very conservative, very traditional, right? Oh, this is surely, this is the land of machismo um, and the Catholic Church. Um, but in fact, in 
that stereotype could not be uh, further removed from the truth. Um, in fact, um, Latin America historically has witnessed a very different kind of family um, pattern dating back to the colonial period and on into the present. Um, to cite just one statistic that I think really captures um, um, the, the root of this, of this reality, around the year 1900, Latin America had the lowest marriage rates of anywhere in the world and the highest rates of so-called illegitimate birth, what we once called illegitimacy and now what social scientists call um, non-marital childbearing. So in other words, historically, most people in Latin America, or many people, particularly poor people, which is to say the majority, have not gotten married formally in the eyes of church and state and have had many, if not most, of their children um, out of wedlock, to again use a nice uh, old-fashioned term. And this, again, this pattern dates back to the colonial period, but it's been reinforced um, over time by different historical changes. And essentially, I would link it to the persistent problem of social inequality in Latin America. So we often think about marriage and family and sexuality as somehow moral matters, right? People get married or they decide who to have relations with based on moral considerations. But in fact, there, are all, there is also very much a material and economic basis to um, these social patterns and patterns of decision making. Um, and that's very much the case in Latin America. So um, historically, people haven't gotten married in essence because they haven't had a material incentive, an economic incentive to do so. So we often think about you know, dynastic families in Europe marrying for economic reasons, but even peasants might um, go through a kind of economic calculus, whether they're aware of it or not, um, when they get married. Um, you know, if you have one skinny cow and two crappy hectares of land, you still want to pass that skinny cow and those you know, two little hectares of land to your children. And so in order for that in to happen, um, legally, uh, you got to marry to ensure that your, you know, your children will receive your property. But what happens if you don't have a, even a skinny cow to your name? What happens if you don't have two hectares to your name? And, and this is really um, the problem, uh, you could say, of Latin America historically, that um, resources, land, um, you know, historically, but then other kinds of resources more recently, have really been concentrated in a, um, a very small minority. And the vast majority of people um, have been, um, uh, you know, have had much less access to property and wealth. Um, and so they've had much less of an, an incentive to, to marry um, and to ensure the passage, the transmission of property um, to future generations. They may also not, frankly, have had, uh, you know, the money to uh, take out the certificate, the, the, the marriage certificate with the priest. Um, so there are a whole series of economic um, considerations um, that have essentially disincentivized um, marriage historically. Um, and then there's also the phenomenon of endogamy, what social scientists refer to endogamy uh, as endogamy, which you know refers to um, um, in marriage, marriage within the group, however defined, socially, religiously, ethnically, etc. Um, so historically in Latin America, as in frankly most other societies, um, endogamous norms have predominated. Most people marry other people who belong to their social group, again, however defined. But in colonial and post-colonial and deeply unequal societies, as we know, very often relationships, intimate relationships happen across those lines, across lines of color, across lines of class. So, you know, one of the prerogatives of being an elite male is having relationships, informal, um, illegitimate relationships with uh, lower status women, the, you know, the, the, the slave of your household or the servant of your household. 
Um, and those relationships are, happen. Children are born of those relationships, but they will never be formalized in marriage. Um, and so n norms of endogamy um, also create illegitimacy, essentially by um, creating the opportunity for um, relationships, intimate relationships to happen that will never garner the formal um, recognition of, of the law. Right? Um, so these kinds of social and economic inequalities and dynamics have really historically generated um, what we might call non-normative families, families that don't follow the normative uh, prescriptions established by the Catholic Church or the state or um, societal elites. In fact, you say uh, under 19th century civil codes uh, that shaped family law in Latin America until recently, there were only two conditions under which men were actually legally considered fathers. That's correct. So on the one hand, we have the social reality, how people are actually living their lives, how they're forming families, um, how they are having children. And then we have, on the other hand, um, the norms, uh, the law, what the law says or what the law assumes people to be doing. Um, and in Latin America, historically, there has been a quite extraordinary breach between family practices on the one hand and family law on the other. Family law historically has really been written for elites um, rather than for the mass, vast majority of people and with concern, you know, with their own, with their concerns, elite concerns um, in mind. And so um, paternity law is a great example of this. Um, the civil law in, in in 19th century Latin America recognizes paternity only under two conditions. First, husbands are always the fathers of their wives' children. Um, this dates back to a Roman um, uh, precept, uh, a precept of Roman law, pateres cem nuptia demonstrat. The father is he whom marriage demonstrates. So marriage makes the father. So that's the first um, condition in which a man can be recognized as father. And the second is um, in cases in which parents are not married, a man can be declared the father if he um, essentially opts into paternity, if he uh, demonstrates through his public behavior um, that he is the father of a given child. Um, so this is really a volitional idea of paternity in which men uh, decide that they're going to be fathers as opposed to understanding paternity as an automatic relationship born of the act of procreation. In, in this vision of the law, paternity does not stem from procreation. Paternity stems from the will of the father to, to accept um, and recognize himself and undertake the responsibilities of fatherhood. So very, a very uh, different vision of paternity than that which um, is happening in, in reality because we have many children who are born outside of marriage, as, as I explained, and yet we have a law that really narrowly defines paternity as again, either um, very closely associated with marriage or, again, only volitionally um, born out of the volition of the man. By the mid-20th century, you write, economic changes had begun to reshape families in the region. Give us some examples of that. The pattern that I've described is sort of the historic pattern from the you know, colonial period through the 19th century and into the early 20th century. But by the middle of the 20th century, we see... Um, quite dramatic shifts in patterns of family formation and family life, at least in some Latin American countries, not in all countries, but in, in, in a number of them. And in particular, we see in sort of the, the wealthier and more modernized um, countries of Latin America, places like Argentina and Chile and Brazil, 
um, dramatic economic and political changes happening in the mid-20th century that are really shaping um, family patterns. Again, the, the, the idea that family is not just a moral formation, it's a material formation, so it responds um, very much to changing economic incentives. And in the mid-20th century, what happens in Latin America is a, is a, is a very dramatic uh, transformation of the economic model. Whereas in the 19th century, you have this laissez-faire liberal economic model um, in which um, countries produce um, agricultural exports, um, you know, copper and, or mining exports, copper in Chile, bananas in Costa Rica, coffee in Brazil. So you, the idea is that you produce um, these kind of primary products and export them to Europe. Um, in the mid-20th century, you see a very different uh, vision of the economy, one in which um, you shift from, a, from a, a, a primarily agricultural economy to a more industrial one. And the idea here is rather than trading our coffee for your refrigerators over there in Europe, we're going to produce our own refrigerators here in Latin America. And so you see the rise of state-sponsored um, industrialization. Um, so the state is very much um, a part of this vision of supporting economic development. And you also see, uh, in essence, the, the birth of what we might call Latin American New Deals. Um, the idea of a social welfare state, again, the shift after the Great Depression to the idea that the state really should take responsibility um, for the social welfare of, of its citizens, particularly its poorer citizens. And collectively, this, these new, you know, these economic changes and this new vision of the state um, creates different kind of incentive structures for families. For the first time, you have poor men able to access industrial jobs with relatively decent wages, family wages, as historians call them, that is to say wages that are uh, generous enough that allow them to support a um, patriarchal household with a non-working wife and dependent children. That is new um, in, 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 uh, in Latin America. Um, so you have these, uh, these, these new structures. You also have new incentives on the part of a state offering social security and health insurance and other benefits, state-sponsored state benefits, um, but only to people who are married. So for the first time, we have poor people um, who have an incentive, working class people who have an incentive, a real incentive to formalize their families in the eyes of the state, to marry, to sign the piece of paper, to register their children, to give the child a formal father. Um, and that's exactly what happens in places, again, like Chile and Argentina. Um, you see marriage rates rise quite, quite dramatically um, and rates of extramarital birth decrease. Um, and probably the best example of that, the most dramatic one, is, is Chile, where in the late 1920s, uh, something like 40% of children are born um, extramaritally. So late 1920s, 40%. By the early 1960s, that rate dips to 16%. So think about this for a second. We're talking about mm. uh, three decades, a little more than three decades, with uh, you know, the space of a generation, this really dramatic shift, you know, captured in this one single statistic of, of children born outside of marriage, um, a really dramatic shift in terms of um, who, you know, who's getting married and how they're having children and what their families must look like. But Latin America's embrace of formal families proved short-lived, you write. Uh, how did the politics and the economics of the later 20th century help reshape families once again? So, 
at the end of the 20th century, we see um, what we might call a pattern of going back to the future, um, an re-embrace of an economic pattern of the, the late 19th century and a rejection of the very economic policies and state postures that in the middle of the 20th century had, had given rise to this very different family. So today, uh, people talk about neoliberalism, uh, the rise of neoliberalism, and when they talk about neoliberalism, they really do mean neoliberalism, a new kind of liberalism, but one that really Really harks back to the to the liberal the laissez-faire liberalism of the of the late 20th century. Um, so, uh, in it, sorry, in the, uh, harking back to the late 19th century. So, at the end of the the 20th century. Um, you know, as a result of uh, a crisis, debt crisis of the of the 1980s, um, it, the, the pendulum sort of swung back again from um, economic nationalism back to um, to liberalism once again, um, with all of the you know concomitant um, policies that that entails of privatization, um, the shredding of the social safety net, the idea of this, you know, this, this laissez-faire state that is no longer going to take responsibility for these, providing these expensive social benefits. And so the incentive structures um, shift once again and uh, lo and behold, we see uh, people you know, losing the um, family wage jobs that they had once had, or losing them because they, they no longer exist, and um, other kinds of shifts in which new forms of female employment, poorly paid uh, usually, um, female employment arise. Um, but the sort of um, sum total of these, of these changes is that um, they disincentivize once again the, 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 the nuclear patriarchal family um, that at least briefly had appeared in the middle of the 20th century. So now we see once again um, a return to the female-headed households of the past, the non-marrying beha behaviors of the past. So um, particularly in the 80s and 90s, we witness once again the decline of marriage, the, ri the rise once again of extramarital childbearing. And so we go sort of back to the future where today Today, um, the statistics have sort of looped right back to the early 20th century. Um, so we see, um, you know, rates of children born outside of marriage of, of more than 70% in some countries, more than 80% in others. Um, it is to say that marriage, you know, people don't marry um, anymore because once again, they don't have incentives um, to do so. And once again, I don't want to reduce these um, into to crude, um, purely economic um, um, in calculations, um, there are clearly, you know, people don't necessarily experience them as economic calculations. They experience them as social and existential decisions. Um, but nevertheless, I think that, that we can't ignore um, the broad material landscape as we try to understand these shifts. But suffice it to say, um, Latin America is once again the area of the world with the lowest rates of marriage. Um, it, you know, far uh, exceeds even, you know, we think of liberal Scandinavia um, when we think of non-marrying behavior and liberal family patterns. Um, but in fact, um, Latin America is way more Scandinavian, you might say, than, than Scandinavia is. So how did this trend lead to enforcement of responsible paternity laws? So I think to understand where responsible paternity laws come from, on the one hand, we, we have to you know, note that, wow, once again, we have these non-marital you know, non families um, uh, that have become once again so important, indeed predominant in many Latin American countries. And then I think there's also certain political shifts that we have to understand um, in the post-Cold War era. 
so Latin America during the Cold War experienced um, uh, the kind of the death of democracy um, and a series of authoritarian military regimes um, in, in the case of South America, in the case of, of, of Central America, um, widespread civil war, um, and everywhere, um, you know, these military regimes and, and, and uh, civil strife were characterized by widespread human rights violations, um, uh, violence, state-sponsored terrorism, etc. Um, and in the wake of the, the Cold War, with the return to democracy um, in the 1990s, um, there again, dramatic shifts, I think, political shifts that shape family. Um, so we see a redemocratization, not just of political systems, the idea that uh, redemocratizing doesn't just mean opening uh, Congress again. Um, it really means redemocratizing civil society, that it, uh, redemocratization requires a thoroughgoing transformation of civil society. And so you, we see the rise of many different rights movements, of an ascendant civil society, um, new claims for women's rights, now for LGBT rights, for children's rights. There's a very powerful children's rights movement um, happening uh, in Latin America beginning in the 1990s. And these different rights movements draw on the hegemonic language of human rights, of democracy, of truth, of justice. You know, this is a moment post-dictatorship when these ideas about citizenship and rights and equality have really tremendous political and cultural power. Um, and so there, there is kind of this idea that, um, you know, that, 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 that women, that children, that uh, other groups in society that have been historically disenfranchised, in order to truly create a, a democratic society, they need to be enfranchised. And in this context, historic forms of discrimination against certain categories of people, namely illegitimate children or unmarried mothers, these historic forms of discrimination seem archaic, right? They seem um, obsolete. Um, and so um, new ideas about, um, you know, creating a, a more democratic society require creating also more equal families. And it's really in this context that the idea of responsible paternity emerges. The idea that um, it shouldn't just be mothers who are responsible for children, but fathers as well. And it's not fair that um, unmarried mothers have no rights um, where married mothers um, do have rights. And it's not fair that children born outside of marriage have no right to a father um, where children born in marriage do. And so, um, again, drawing on ideas of, of justice and equality and citizenship and rights, um, we see the emergence of this idea of, of responsible paternity, that um, greater equity in society requires greater equity in the family, across generations and across uh, genders. Responsible paternity policy should portend greater equity in gender relations, uh, family, and social stability, but you say they're not necessarily as beneficial or even benign, uh, still pointing a finger of blame in a way. Absolutely. So, you know, on the one hand, you think responsible paternity, who could be against such an innocuous call? Um, better dads? I mean, how, how could that be a bad thing? Who could be against that? Um, but I argue that, you know, when we think about the history of families in Latin America, this idea, this, this, this political watchword of responsible paternity is rather less innocuous than it seems. Um, and I think that's true for a couple of reasons. One is that um, the idea of paternal uh, uh, responsibility um, really dwells on the idea of responsibility. 
in not just responsibility, but blame. Um, I would argue that these policies, um, as they are at least sometimes presented, really blame the poor for their own um, plight. Um, so the idea here is that the personal behavior of poor families, and in particular poor men, explains um, you know, certain unfortunate features of, um, you know, of the lives of poor people, um, rather than thinking about the structural conditions that, um, that give rise to them. So you can find policymakers who talk about how responsible paternity is, is responsible, is to blame for poverty, for um, you know, juvenile delinquency, um, that it is the root of violence in society, and say, for example, Central America, which has you know, currently a uh, major problem with, um, with gang-related violence. Um, I've read um, accounts which suggest that at the end of the day, irresponsible fathers are to blame for the problem of street gangs, um, of juvenile gangs, and violence in Central America. Indeed, the entire Central American refugee crisis, um, which has you know, filtered up the hemisphere in the last several years, is, the, is the, um, uh, the, the origin of this problem are responsible fathers. If only fathers took better care of their children and fulfilled you know, the psychosocial needs of their children, those children wouldn't have... Um, uh, um, a need to join street gangs. So this is a quite you know, extraordinary argument in which poor people, in particular poor fathers, become responsible for all manner of, of you know, social and structural and economic um, problems in their society. So I think that this is, you know, this is, this is a time-worn <laughs> response or um, posture on the part of, of policymakers, not just in Latin America, but, but certainly we could point to examples of this in the United States as well, in which you, know, you, blame, you blame the victims. You um, suggest that the, you know, the immoral behavior, or the irresponsible behavior of the poor um, explains um, certain social um, or economic ills. So I think that's one problem with responsible paternity and one reason that it's not so innocuous as it seems. Um, but I think there are other problems with the idea as well. Um, one of them is, is the, paradoxically this fixation on paternity, um, which on the one hand is so um, um, salubrious because usually policymakers like to focus on mothers when they think about child welfare and often exclude, you know, ignore fathers altogether. So on the one hand, thinking about fathers is, is a salubrious impulse. On the other hand, um, what about when we... What happens when we make fathers so central and, and paternal identity so central? So we have um, this really, you know, sort of patrilineal idea of a child's identity in which children do not, are said to not have an identity or not have a name if they do not have a legal father. Um, so this is a really sort of patriarchal vision of, of identity, of belonging, of family. Um, um, there's also, I think, embedded in responsible paternity an idea of who, who counts as a father, and really we're talking about biological fathers, so there's a really a, a biogenetic idea about kinship um, that responsible paternity proponents don't really recognize. Um, and really uh, another and I think related problem with the idea is that at the end of the day, um, it, responsible paternity um, advocates a particular notion of family in which, again, you have a responsible father, but presumably a, you know, a, a patriarchal head of household, um, um, a biological father who is sort of in charge. Um, and this is a vision of family besides sounding, um, you know, uh, distinctly 
um, patriarchal doesn't look a lot like families today in Latin America. So we have all kinds of non-biological, non-genetic kin relations um, that people pursue. Families are not necessarily organized um, around a nuclear model. We have lots of female-headed households um, in Latin America today uh, raising children. Again, the rates of female headship um, have risen um, in the uh, beginning in the 18, 1980s and 1990s and, and through the present. So, you know, what does it mean to dwell on responsible paternity in a part of the world with so many female-headed households? So this is really a model of family. I think there's, there's embedded in responsible paternity a, a notion of what a family should look like, um, which doesn't look a whole hell of a lot like, um, like most families in Latin America today. So we, in some ways, this is a, a, another uh, instance of back to the future in which you have policymakers, political elites, um, social arbiters um, advocating a particular vision of family that has nothing to do with the social reality of actual families. And in that regard, even though the fam- you know, what they're propounding is, is very different than the 19th century, and in that regard, they sound a lot like um, their 19th century predecessors. Um, it seems that elites are always sort of out of touch mm. with um, what, what's going on on the ground in actual families and why those families behave the way they do. There's also a puritanical view of sex that limits the options for real responsibility when it comes uh, to becoming parents in the first place, uh, ideas of contraception and abortion. Absolutely. And one of, one of the, the issues that I have with responsible paternity is it really asks, I mean, there, sometimes responsible paternity um, policies ask about how people become um, parents about uh, choices to to become parents. They really tend to focus on what fathers do once they already are parents. Um, but the discussion tends to leave out um, uh, the fact that in Latin America today, abortion is um, illegal um, in the vast majority of countries. Cuba is the uh, exception. Um, Uruguay um, and part of of Mexico, um, and it. Uh, also ignores the fact that contraception is uh, very difficult to come by um, and inaccessible um, for many, if not most, poor people. Um, So I'm not sure that we can talk about responsibility and paternity or families without thinking about those structural constraints um, and those, you know, lack of access to rights. Um, and, um, And this is you know, this is a problem, but talking about abortion is not surprisingly very um, controversial. Talking about contraception is controversial, but everybody can get around, you know, responsible paternity. And I think there's a certain bait and switch, perhaps, that's therefore that is, is going on, where people want to talk about the thing that they can agree on, as opposed to um, questions of sexuality and contraception um, that are much more controversial um, and uncomfortable and, you know, divisive. Not all the neediest in Latin America, especially poor women, see proving paternity as a priority. Uh, What do recent surveys tell us about that view and statistics on actual use of the new procedures, bureaucratic and and scientific uh, DNA testing, to trace and prove fatherhood? Um, That's a great question. So, um, you know, what do surveys tell us? Um, Well, we don't have surveys, and there's a reason we don't have surveys, um, to know what, how women, or, or for that matter, men, are responding to these policies. Um, and there's a reason, I think, for that, and that is that um, 
these policies really are not emerging out of the felt needs or um, 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 claims of stated claims of poor families themselves. So for example, in Costa Rica, a study recently showed, a few years ago showed that something like a third of single mothers, only a third of single mothers take advantage of the responsible paternity legislation to um, identify the uh, fathers of their children. So the response of political elites when they heard this, or policymakers, was, oh, well, it must be that the mothers, this is a problem of public education. The mothers just don't know that they're allowed to establish, um, you know, that they have these access to these resources, these state resources, and these, you know, bureaucratic protocols um, to find the fathers of their children. It's really a question of public education. We just have to um, educate them better and inform them of their rights. But what happens if the problem is not one just of education or information? It's one of choice. What if two-thirds of single mothers don't want anything to do with the fathers of their children? And there are, we can imagine many reasons why that might be. Perhaps they have other partners who are acting as fathers um, and have chosen not to you know, have anything to do with the biological fathers of their children. Um, perhaps you know, he's a, he's a good-for-nothing and she's better off without him. There are certainly custody issues that are involved. Um, with responsibility come rights. Some people don't want to share rights um, to their children with um, an estranged partner. You know, there are, we can imagine there are all kinds of personal, private reasons why people might choose or, or, uh, to, to know, um, to identify the father of their child or not. Um, but it is striking that you know, two-thirds of single mothers in this one study um, chose not to establish the father. And it, I think that's a small hint. We don't have surveys that tell us what women are thinking. Um, we have these little snippets of, you know, a vision of what they're doing. So we can only sort of, um, you know, sort of deduce from their behavior what it is they're thinking or, you know, you know, what are the motivations behind that behavior. But, but we do have this kind of inkling that there may be very different considerations going on in people's heads um, um, that really have very little to do with um, what policymakers, you know, originally envisioned. And there's, I think there's another major problem uh, with responsible paternity that really hasn't um, originated with um, claims on the part of mothers, or for that matter, fathers um, themselves, with poor people, poor families themselves. Um, this is really, I think, um, in many ways, an imagined um, and that's not to say false, but it is to say a creation of policymakers. But responsible paternity does seem to play to the far-right tide in politics we see in Trump's America, England's Brexit, uh, elections across Europe, the emphasis on personal responsibility over costly government social welfare programs. Absolutely. And, and herein, I think, is the nut of the issue of, of responsible paternity. On the one hand, it arises out of this democratizing moment post-Cold War. Um, responsible paternity appeals to feminists because it, you know, with its promise of gender equity, it appeals to child rights activists and anti-poverty activists because it seems to um, put um, fathers on the hook um, and thereby to improve, you know, the economic and cultural and social status of children in the family. Um, and yet this is also a policy that 
the right gets behind. Both the, both the religious right, um, Catholics as well as evangelicals, have been um, very um, enthusiastic proponents of responsible paternity um, in Latin America, um, and also neoliberal um, conservatives. That is to say, perhaps people motivated um, less by, you know, traditional Catholic notions of what a family should be and more by, um, you know, conservative ideas about uh, the, the relationship between the state and the individual and the idea that individuals need to be responsible, um, need to be held accountable for um, their behavior. So we see, for example, in Mexico, the, you know, the right-wing neoliberal um, PAN party, um, you know, certain members of that party being very enthusiastic proponents of, of, of responsible paternity. This is, you know, personal responsibility, um, you know, in a nutshell. Um, and so ultimately we have this very strange, these very strange bedfellows of feminists and child rights and anti-poverty people on the one hand with, you know, evangelicals and Catholics and then and neoliberals on the other, all getting behind this um, this idea, but an idea that I think, you know, the, the, the bedfellows that are missing are the people that are actually being the families, the mothers and fathers and children who are, who are in fact impacted by these policies. They, they really aren't, I think, at the table, and they really should be. Naramlanish, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Naramlanish is an associate professor of history at Barnard College in New York. Her scholarly interests include modern Latin America and the histories of family, gender, law, and social inequality. For the WPJ Fall issue, she wrote the article headline, Daddy Issues, Responsible Paternity as Public Policy in Latin America. Her book, The Birth of Uncertainty, A Social and Political History of Paternity Testing, will be released by Harvard University Press next year. Featured in the upcoming WPJ Winter Issue, Coverline Native Voices, you'll find an inside account of struggles behind the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights and articles about a flawed treaty in New Zealand, rediscovered native roots in Norway, and the viral battle being waged by Bedouin Arabs, plus Portugal's economic prospects and Nigeria's growing cinema industry, Nollywood, and much more. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jarombek, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern.